I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, Episode 50, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, Volume 1, pages 168 to 182. Wilde met his dear friends Moore Addy and Reverend Stuart Hedlam at the prison gate and there was a brief meeting with intimate friends before Wilde and Addie left England for France. Robert Ross and Reginald Turner were waiting for them when the boat docked. The gentlemen then went to the Hotel Sandwich in Deep, where Wilde was reg- where Wilde registered under the assumed name of Monsieur Sebastian Melmoth. It was at this point that Wilde gave Ross the De Profundis Manuscript. Wilde later moved to the Hotel de la Plage at the seaside coastal town of berneval sur near Dieppe, where he began his most famous poem and final literary work, The Ballad of Reading Gail. H. Montgomery Hyde, who had access to much of Hyde's private correspondence during this period reported that immediately upon his arrival in Paris, Wilde rekindled his homosexual affair with his little Robbie, and that he also resumed his indiscriminate prowling for young sexual partners in Paris and abroad, a practice that continued up until his final illness in the fall of 1900. Then, much to Ross's regret, Wilde and his bossy, who by now had lost much of their youthful beauty that was so important to Wilde, met and reconciled their differences in Rouen and started to travel together once again. Their first stop was Naples. Unfortunately, once it became public knowledge that Wilde had rejoined Douglas and had reverted to his former life of the sewer, his visitors dwindled down to almost zero, as did the funds that had been he had that he had been receiving from his wife and old friends. In his autobiography, Douglas declared that for six months prior to Wilde's imprisonment and after Wilde had been released from breeding jail, they no longer engaged in any sexual intimacy with one another. Douglas blamed Ross for stirring up Wilde's homoerotic passions again at Berneval, although it is more likely, more than likely that Wilde would have resumed his homosexual exploits without Ross's excitement, incitement. Queensbury had hired a detective to track Wilde and Douglas on the continent and kept them apart, but this attempt, like all the others, failed. When they broke up, they would do it on their own. By late December of 1898, Wilde and Douglas had had their bitterest quarrel ever and separated for the last time. Wilde continued his travels sometimes in the company of Robbie Ross and at other times alone. In spite of his homosexual pursuits, or perhaps because of them, Wilde did at times turn his mind and heart to things spiritual. He occasionally went to Mass and in March was in Rome for Easter and received the Pope's blessings seven times. Ross said that Wilde told him the artistic life of the church and the fragrance of its teaching would have cured my degeneracies. By the time Wilde made the decision to leave Rome and Sicily and return to Paris, he was nearly penniless and his health had drastically declined due in part to his increased dependency on drugs, especially liquor and absinthe which he used to numb the pain of social isolation and the physical effects of premature aging. His life as an artist had come to an end, but his homoerotic passions were hanging on for dear life. Oscar Wilde died on November 30, 1900, at the age of 46, at the Hotel de la Sainte, The proprietor, Monsieur Jean de Poyer, had compassion on the ailing wild and never pressed him for payment. The cause of death was most likely a form of 
pilitis, meningitis, resulting from a classic ear infection, although tertiary syphilis cannot be fully ruled out. Two days before his death, Robert Ross had asked an English priest from the Passionist Order, Father Cuthbert Dunn, to come to Wilde's room with Ross Answering for Wilde, the dying man was given conditional baptism and anointed with the oils of extreme unction. Although Wilde remained heavily sedated with morphine, he did experience brief periods of lucidity, during which time Father Dunn was able to confirm that Wilde, of his own free will, did desire to enter the Roman Catholic Church. Ross said that Wilde had once told him that Catholicism is the only religion to die in. From his writings, it appears that Wilde's alienation from his early Protestant roots appeared to increase the older he got. A requiem mass was said for Wilde by Father Dunn and the church rector of the, at the chapel of the Sacred Heart behind the grand altar of St. Germain de Play Church in the Latin Quarter of Paris. Wilde was buried in a pauper's grave at Banu outside the walls of Paris on December 3, 1900, in the presence of Robert Ross and Lord Douglas. The latter was hysterical with grief and nearly collapsed into the gravesite. And as noted earlier, Wilde's old nemesis Queensberry did, died the same year as Wilde. Like Wilde, he had also made a deathbed conversion to Catholicism. As for Bossy, his life changed drastically after Wilde's death. On March 4, 1902, he married Olive Custance with the resentful Robert Ross looking on. The couple had one son, Raymond. Like Wilde, Douglas was an affectionate and dutiful father. In 1911, Lord Douglas converted to Catholicism and convinced of the sinfulness but not criminality of homosexual behavior. He turned from his former life as a pederast and never looked back. After his marriage and conversion, Douglas was naturally anxious to disassociate himself from Wilde's crime. He opposed the publication of De Profundis and later engaged in a series of bitter court battles with Ross and other antagonists that exhausted his financial resources and finally alienated his wife. By the time of his death on March 20, 1945, in Sussex, England, however, he managed to put off his lifelong impetuous and self-destructive behavior long enough to be reconciled with his family and to ask and receive forgiveness from the many enemies he had created throughout his lifetime. Although Lord Alfred Douglas outlived Wilde by almost half a century, I think it only fair to add that Wilde's writings, particularly his plays and fairy tales, outlived both Queensberry and his son. New Revelations Concerning the Wilde Trials Throughout all the Wilde trials, his solicitors and many of his later biographers, including Richard Elman, repeatedly emphasized that the young men with whom Wilde was alleged to have committed acts of indecency were all over the statutory age of 17. If Montgomery, H. Montgomery Hyde also claimed that, as far as it was known, he never debauched any innocent young man. Presumably, Wilde's sexual relations with young, possibly pre-adolescent boys in Algiers and other well-known homosexual happy hunting grounds outside of England were not to be counted. However, newly uncovered documents on the Wilde trials suggest that much of the more damning evidence against Wilde was actually never used against him at his trials. In a story titled Wilde's Sex Life, exposed in explicit court files by Vanessa Thorpe and, Simone, and Simon de Burton that appeared in the Sunday, May 6, 2002 issue of the London Observer, the authors reported that new documents on the, night, on the 1895 Wilde trials revealed that much of the more damaging evidence against Wilde was withheld by Queensberry and his solicitor, Charles Brussel, Russell, and never made public. The 52 pages of handwritten statements on heavy parchment paper from 32 witnesses were obtained by Queensberry's agents and then handed over to their solicitor. 
over to his solicitor that day. Russell and Company, a London collector, picked up the bundle in the 1950s in a junk shop and put them up for auction at Christie's. According to Thorpe and Burton, the packet of documents that was purchased for just a pittance was now expected to fetch 12,000 pounds. Thomas Benning, a manuscript specialist at Christie's, said the documents provided a new account of Wilde's undoing and had very detailed sexual content that which was only mentioned in the trial euphemistically. One of the documents made available to the press was a statement by a young man named Wallace Walter Granger. Granger stated that Wilde took him to a cottage in nearby Going on Thames, which the playwright had rented and where he wrote An Ideal Husband. On the second or third night, said Granger, Wilde came into my bedroom and woke me up and told me to come into his bedroom, which was just which was next door. He worked me up with his hand and made me spend in his mouth. The former butler of the Marquess of Queensbury was reported to have been in the next room. Granger, who was just 16 when Wilde met him, was never called to testify against Wilde. Another newly uncovered document contained a statement by Gertrude Simmons, governess to Wilde's two sons, who said she saw Wilde holding the arm of George Hughes, a boat boy, and patting him very familiarly. George Hughes was never brought forth to testify against Wilde. Then there is the matter of the testimony given by employees of the Savoy Hotel who claimed that they saw Wilde with young boys in his room on several different occasions. These included the statements of the Monsieur Antonio Mega and that of Jane Cotter, the hotel chambermaid. The young boys were never identified. There was also evidence concerning the uh, stained sheets. Clark offered the simple explanation that Wilde had a case of diarrhea that accounted for the feces found on the bed linens. The newly uncovered documents from the Day Russell and Company law firm shed new light on these matters and suggest that if indeed the testimony of the Savoy employees at the Wilde trials were skewed, they were skewed to Wilde's favor, not against him. For example, found among the transcripts was the original statement of a Savoy chambermaid named Margaret Cota that was given to the police or to Queensbury's detectives before the trial. It is obvious from the text that Margaret Cota and Jane Cotter, who testified in the Wild Trials in 1895, were one and the same person. However, the original statement is different from the testimony she gave at the trials. First, Cotter stated that the age of the common boy rough-looking in Wild's bed was about 14, not 16, as she later testified. Carter then reported that the sheets of Wild's bed were always in a most disgusting state, with traces of Vaseline, soil, and semen. She, sick. she said she received instructions that these linens were to be kept apart and washed frequent, separately. Carter added that a stream of page boys delivering letters were usually kissed by Wilde, who dipped them who tipped them two shillings and sixpence for their trouble. Why did Carter Carter why did Carter Carter change her testimony concerning the age of the boy she saw she said she saw in Wilde's bed? Was it because he was underage, in which case Wilde would have been facing more serious charges from me than a misdemeanor. Why were the other boys in Wilde's bed at the Savoy never identified? Why did the prosecution not have expert forensic witnesses testify as to the exact nature of the unusual stains on Wilde's bedding? Evidence of semen together with Vaseline community used 
commonly used as lubricant for anal penetration would have sealed their case. The answer to these questions may be that while Queensberry wanted Wilde convicted, he was also interested in protecting his own son, <clears throat> Lord Douglas, and who, though in France, was not entirely outside the long reach of the law. It was probably on great, no great secret that both Wilde and Douglas had had sexual relations with underage boys in Algiers. If he raped, if he upped the ante against Wilde, perhaps Queensbury believed he might also do his son harm. There was an all, there was also an outside chance that Queensbury had sufficient evidence against Prime Minister Rosebery of a personal nature, which would guarantee a guilty verdict for Wilde, but thus making any additional evidence against Wilde superfluous. In the end, much of the written testimony that could have been used against Wilde was thrown in the desk drawer at Dave Russell and Company to gather dust until their public auctioning 100 years later, a remarkable footnote to a remarkable trial. The importance of being wild. Although Oscar Wilde has recently achieved icon status as a precursor of the modern homosexual and a pioneer for gay rights is highly unlikely that Wilde ever thought of himself in these terms. In De Profundis, Wilde made it clear that he underwent his passion and martyrdom at Reading Jail solely for his, the sake of his art. Although De Profundis is one of the few works in which Wilde discussed his voices, these references to his homoerotic passion are all filtered through the lens of Wilde as the supreme artist, and not Wilde, the supreme revolutionary who seized and articulated the modern homosexual identity. Nevertheless, there is no doubt that the public trials of Oscar Wilde did play an important role in exposing the Oxbridge upper-class homosexual network, as well as London's seedier homosexual underground to the outside world. This exposure provides certain insights into the heretofore closeted and semi-secret underworld of the Victorian sodomite that are of particular importance to this study. The first is that the primary mode of homosexual expression in 19th century England was pederasty, that is, same-sex liaisons that typically involved an older man who assumed the dominant, i.e., the role, the male gender role, and a younger passive partner. The latter gave pleasure to the former, and roles were rarely interchanged. Casual affairs with multiple partners characterized homosexual relations at all levels of Victorian society. Although there were some notable exceptions, these merely served to emphasize the role. Secondly, the Wild case demonstrates that despite all the rhetoric about the democratic and egalitarian aspects of male homosexuality, the essential predatory nature of pederastic homosexuality and the barriers of class or ethnic distinctions remained. Indeed, as Wilde explains in De Profundis, the danger posed by slumming with his inferiors was half the excitement. The rich and famous Wilde unabashedly used poor working-class boys for his own sensual pleasure, not out of any altruistic or humanitarian considerations, for which a quid pro, of which a quid, a smile, and handshake would have sufficed nicely. But perhaps uh, one of the most instructive insights afforded by the Wild case is the ability of social institutions to stumble, to stimulate and promote homosexual behavior. The emphasis placed on the Hellenic tradition in British boarding schools and at the universities of Oxford and Cambridge with its subtle homoerotic 
overtones played an important role in undermining religious and moral sanctions against sodomy using sodomy among the predominantly Protestant aristocracy and upper middle classes. Particularly insidious was the linking of art to the dogmas of aestheticism which proclaimed the superiority of a higher sodomy and which held artists to be above the law and moral and religious restraints that had humanity that bind humanity together for the common good. There is one other important footnote to the wild story that I should like to add at this time. Although the full impact of the of its significance will not be readily discernible until a much later chapter on the 20th century popes. It concerns a certain young man who was known to be an admirer of Oscar Wilde's works. The young man was born on September 26, 1897, in Brescia to a prominent Italian family with strong ties to the church. He lived a somewhat cosseted life as a child, due in part to frequent bouts of illness. He grew into a shy, melancholy, somewhat effete adolescent with a limited ability in matters intellectual, but highly attuned to things political, decidedly liberal and anti-fascist. At age 19, he told his parents he had a calling to the priesthood and entered the local seminary as an outpatient on an outpatient basis necessitated in part by hectic wartime conditions. Thus, he never had the opportunity of experiencing the normal rigors of seminary life, nor was he forced to enter into an academic competition with his peers. Having received a dispensation from Bishop Giacinto Gaggia to live at home, the local seminary was in use as a military hospital. He committed to his seminary lectures at, held at makeshift facilities at San Crucio Dust in Civis, as he had also been as he had also been dispensed from wearing the required soutane cassock that marked the ordinary seminarians as men set apart for God's service. He was, as Wilde would say, a young man born for exceptions. Second only to his passion for politics was a young friend's passion for reading. His living arrangements away from the censorious eyes of a seminary rector or room proctor permitted him the widest latitude in private readings. His readings included the works of Adam Mikowicz, the leader of Polish Romanticism, as well as Tolstoy, Goethe, and most surprisingly Oscar Wilde, whose books and writings at the time were still difficult to obtain. He read De Profundis, a sketchy Italian translation, and underlined the passage, the poor are wiser, more charitable, more inclined to good, more sensitive than we are. In their eyes, prison is a tragedy in a man's life, a misfortune, a misadventure, something which calls for sympathy. Later in the poem, next to Wilde's complaint, a day without lamentations is a day in which one has a closed heart, not a day about which one can be happy. A single London suburb contains enough unhappiness to demonstrate that God does not love men. Our young man writes in the margin, or that men do not love God. On the subject of the heretical statements found in De Profundis related to Christ, his mission on earth, or the holiness of sin, where one would expect to find, would expect expressions of outrage from a young man aspiring to the priesthood, one finds only silence. By any measure, the reading of Oscar Wilde's works by the young Italian seminarian was decidedly strange, all the more so when one considers the time period, 1917, and the still close connection in the public mind between Wilde and the crime of sodomy. Was there any connection between the seminarian's liberal political ideology and his fascination with Wilde as a religious and moral rebel? I will now explore these questions and many more later in the book, for now I think it's sufficient to identify the young seminarian in question. Here is Giovanni Battista Montini, 
the future Pope Paul VI. Don Addington Simmons, a new homosexual model. Don Addington Simmons, a prominent 19th century man of letters and Renaissance historian to whom the reader has been briefly introduced in connection with the Vaughan scandal at Harrow, offered Victorian society an alternative to the Wildean model of male homosexuality. An early advocate of homosexual emancipation, Simmons espoused a modern and scientific approach to same-sex eroticism, onto which he grafted a heavy larder of romanticism and utopian socialist politics. His writings on what he preferred to call sexual inversion come very close to many contemporary assumptions about homosexual identity and personhood, and they provide an excellent introduction to the new breed of sexologists who would begin the process of medicalizing homoerotic relations. It was Simmons and not Wilde who helped engineer the new paradigm shift on same-sex relations that would characterize the direction of discourse on homosexuality into the next century and beyond. Even born in Bristol on October 5, 1840, into a wealthy upper-middle-class upper English family with ties to the aristocracy and Oxford, Simmons' early life was marred by two great losses, that of his mother as the, at the tender age of four and the loss of health that would overshadow his entire life until his death at age 52. Simmons' principal biographer, Phyllis Grosskirth noted that his father, a physician, continually fussed over the young boy's delicate state while at the same time urging the sickly and morbidly timid youth to be stronger and manlier. Simmons, in the words of the literary critic Van Wyck Brooks, considered himself an ugly duckling. Young Simmons was both intellectually and sexually precocious. The latter attributed to his early initiation into male sex play, including fellatio at the hands of his older male cousins and other boyhood acquaintances. His erratic interest in young boys lingered on throughout his formative years at the boarding school at Harrow and later at Balliol, Oxford, where he discovered the true liber amorous after a reading of Plato's Phaedrus and the Symposium and William Johnson's Ionica. He studied Greek under Benjamin Jowett and was heavily influenced by Jowett's Hellenistic teachings, both expressed and implied. Simmons' homosexual passions, however, did not find full physical expression until he was in his late 20s, by which time he had married and fathered four children. Between 1878 and 1880, Simmons, beleaguered by chronic illness, pulmonary tuberculosis, and mental exhaustion, moved his family to Switzerland, where he eventually established a permanent residence at the ancient village of Davos, Platz, and winter quarters in Venice, Italy. Having reached an understanding with his wife, whereby he pledged to support his family and continue to play the role of husband outside of the boudoir. Simmons threw off his shackles of sexual restraint and began a long series of homosexual affairs with local youths and tradesmen, including a wide assortment of manly Swiss athletes and handsome Venetian gondoliers. Simmons, having first dispensed with his Calvinist Protestant conscience, soon did away with Christianity altogether in favor of a more flexible, less censorious creed that would serve his homoerotic needs and permit him to spin his own cocoon. Among Simmons' close acquaintances, his homosexuality was an open secret, i.e. known but not openly discussed. Professionally, Simmons continued his life of lecturing and travel as a distinguished man of letters. During his Oxford days, he had distinguished himself as a promising classicist of the first degree by winning the Newgate Prize for English verse 
at Balliol College, 1860, and graduating with honors in literary, literary humanioris. Under an open fellowship at Magdalen College, he had won the Chancellor's Prize for his writings on the Renaissance that laid the foundation for his seven-volume work, Renaissance in Italy, and the studies on Dante, Michelangelo, and Greek and Italian literature and art. Simmons' works on Hellenistic Greece and the Renaissance brought him worldwide attention in England and on the continent along with modest monetary rewards. They also provided for his less tangible needs. As Richter Norton, the prolific writer of all things homosexual, explained, Simmons was a sensualist and a romantic rather than an academic. His cultural studies gave him the opportunity to indulge his central aesthetic preoccupation with healthy naked men, nude use in the gymnasia, the male nudes of Signorelli and Michelangelo, and contemporary photographs of nude young men in classical poses. Simmons also used his, histor his historic studies, particularly his Hellenistic works, to demonstrate that his unnatural sexual appetites were in line with the noblest traditions of the Greek pederastia, and to propagandize for changes in the law aimed at the emancipation of inverts and the decriminalization of consensual homosexual acts. Simmons, who fashioned himself a born Bohemian, generally sought out companions for his romantic adventures in Davos and Venice among working-class youth in their late teens and early twenties. In addition to the difference in age and social status, his choice of Swiss and Italian young men provided an ethnic otherness that added additional excitement and romance to his experiments in democratic sex. In his memoirs, Simmons wrote that he believed that he helped these young men broaden their sexual experiences without altering their normal sexual appetites and that some even discovered pleasure in it for themselves. Thus, Simmons could not be accused of corrupting the morals of youth. Nevertheless, he, was, he always felt obliged to reciprocate this act of friendship with money or with influence. Simmons also admitted he sought out rough trade, strangers, including soldiers, sailors, male and female prostitutes, with whom he took occasional liberties although he adds that he considered these overt commercial affairs to be always abhorrent to his nature. Not all of Simmons' sex partners, however, were outside his own class. One of these exceptions was a young English schoolboy by the name of Norman Moore, who Simmons had met in 1868, Simmons as a seducer and pederast. Simmons was 28 years old and married when he first saw Norman Moore, 17, a handsome, blonde, sixth-form student at Clifton College at a dinner party given by an intimate friend, H. Graham Dawkins, a classic master at the college, a classics master at the college. Simmons became immediately infatuated with the youth and was determined to possess him regardless of the dangers and the intimacy with the well-born lad might present. In his memoirs, Simmons described how he determined the course of action that would put the boy within his grasp. In order to approach him, I contrived that Percival, the headmaster, should invite me to lecture to the sixth form. A successful seduction followed the details of which Simmons carefully recorded in his diary in a rather ethereal style. The affair with his relatively buttoned-down sexuality that most likely did not include sodomy lasted four years with most of the enthusiasm on the elder man's side. In January 1869, Moore went, to, went up to Oxford, much to Simmons' joy, but the lad unfortunately failed to live up to Simmons' expectations as a scholar. Nevertheless, Simmons overcame his disappointment, and their romance continued during Norman's vacation days. In the summer of 1872, Simmons 
took more on a continental tour and then brought the young lad home to visit his wife and daughters. According to Simmons, the two men had traveled in the spirit of comradeship as amorous caresses had gone by. Simmons' wife, Catherine, was always jealous of Norman. Some Simmons' memoirs included a letter from Norman to Simmons written on November 26, 1886, in which Moore gave some details of his early sexual life. He said that he was corrupted by an 11-year-old classmate and later developed a taste himself for younger boys. Moore said that it was John Percival and Simmons that did something to cure me of this. That is, they helped cure him of pederasty. Simmons interpreted this sentence as an affirmation that his seduction of Moore did no harm, that he, Moore, after the lapse of 16 years, looked back upon my influence as salutary in the matter of love between male and female. Male and male. Oh, God. Simmons said he did not regret his passion for Norman as it was natural, and the young man responded to it naturally so far as temperament, age, and constitution of his emotional self permitted. Happily, Moore went on to become a husband, a father, and Simmons' evaluation of his poor scholarship potential aside, one of Clifton College's most popular and excellent classics masters. Norman Moore died of influenza in 1895. The other great love of Simmons' life was Angelo Fusato, Fusato a young, blithe, pretty-looking gondolier and gigolo whom Simmons discovered one day, one May day in 1881 in Venice. Angelo, 24, already had a common-law wife by whom he had fathered two children, but Simmons took that all in stride. He wanted the young man and he had him. That Angelo was a heterosexual merely added to his allure. Simmons helped support the, his new lover and his relatives and gave Angelo money to purchase a house. Later, Simmons obtained a position for Angelo at the post office that enabled the young man to marry. The two men made a mutually satisfactory arrangement wherever, whereby Angelo continued to serve Simmons as lover, personal gondolier, and traveling companion. Much to Catherine's displeasure, Angelo was brought to the family home in Davos as a guest and accompanied his master to the theater and to the residences of Simmons' acquaintances where they visit, when they visited in England. Angelo remained with Simmons until the last, when his master died in Rome on April 19, 1893, Angelo was there to console him. Catherine was not. Sodomy is for sissies. Simmons had an unusual take on sodomy. On one hand, he condemned the practice out of hand as the behavior of degenerate effeminates because the practice forced one partner to take a passive feminine role. Contrary to popular opinion, he argued that buggery was not instinctual in homosexuals and those who engaged in such acts felt repugnance, not pleasure. On the other hand, he held that no physical harm came of sodomy and that nature herself provided for universal rectal pleasure by surrounding the orifice with the same nerves found in the reproductive organs. Obviously, as a practicing homosexual who was attempting to sell Victorians on a new masculinized homosexuality, Simmons' public discourse against sodomy was both understandable and self-serving. Simmons had realized early on in the game that for most Englishmen, sodomy continued to be associated with anti-social and anti-religious beliefs. Further, as the wild trials would later demonstrate, sodomy carried little aesthetic appeal. Simmons' own writings suggest he practiced fellatio and voyeuristic, solitary, and mutual masturbation. And when he engaged in sodomy, he played the dominant manly role, not the passive effeminate role. Interestingly, although Simmons had hundreds of sex partners, he didn't consider himself to be a voluptuary like his friend and wild friend, Lord Ronald Gower, nor did he see himself as an apostle of decadence like the vicious sodomite Oscar Wilde. 
On the contrary, he convinced himself that he indulged his sexual appetites only in moderation without harm to the entire organism and with the spirit of pure and manly shared comradeship rather than pure animal lust. There was, however, a very real and dark aspect to Simmons' promiscuous relationships that had better gone unshared. When Simmons was originally diagnosed with pathesis, tuberculosis of the lungs in 1877 at the age of 15, he was thought to be a congenital degenerative disease with no known cause or cure. Physicians usually prescribed rest, pure air, and good food to tuberculin patients like Simmons. By the late 1880s, however, it had been confirmed by medical science that the White Death was a contagious disease contracted by the inhalation of infections infectious airborne bacteria. Nevertheless, Simmons continued to expose young men to the dangerous and fatal disease by engaging in intimate sexual relations with them. Simmons as a disciple of Greek love. Simmons' writings on homosexuality served two primary purposes, one personal, one public. The first was to justify his own sexual behavior and to assist the highly, the highly compartmentalized Simmons in integrating his homosexual identity with his total self. The second was to change Victorian opinion with regard to the legitimacy of same-sex relations. He felt he took great care to frame the phenomenon of sexual inversion in pseudo-scientific medical forms terms so as to take so as to make the indelicate subject of buggery an acceptable topic of drawing room conversation. He was also the first writer to use the word homosexual in an English publication. Much of Simmons' writings in defense of homoerotic relations are so strikingly familiar that it's hard to believe that they were written well over a century ago. By the early 1880s, Simmons had already produced a large number of both privately circulated and published homoerotic poems, sonnets, and translations, some of which were frankly masturbatory and others cleverly disguised as scriptural meditations. But it was not until 1883 that his first major polemical work on pederasty and homosexuality, a problem in Greek ethics being an inquiry into the phenomenon of sexual inversion, addressed especially to medical psychologists and jurists, appeared in print and then only in a closeted limited edition of 10 copies. In 1891, he published a follow-up study, A Problem in Modern Ethics, again with a limited edition, that both these works contained all manner of contradictions and speculation is not surprising. Medical science, medical science's views on the nature, cause, and, and treatment of homosexuality were in a rapid state of flux and were virtually inseparable from the popular discourse of the Victorian era on congenital degeneracies of all kinds, physical, mental, moral, social, and civic. From a problem in Greek ethics to a problem in modern ethics, to ignore pederastia is to neglect one of the features by which Greek civilization was most sharply distinguished. Yet this has been done by nearly all writers on Greek history and literature. The reasons for evading the investigation of a custom so repugnant to modern taste are obvious, and it might even be plausibly argued that the topic is not sufficiently important in its bearing on Greek life and thought to justify its discussion. Still, the fact remains that pederastic pederastia that pederastic was a social phenomenon of one of the most brilliant periods of human culture in one of the most highly organized and nobly active races. The fact remains that the literature of the Greeks, upon which the best part of humanistic education rests, abounds in references to the pederastic passion, 
The anomaly involved in these facts demands dispassionate interpretation. I do not therefore see why the inquiry should not be attempted, why some one should not strive to ascertain so far as this is possible. The moral feeling of the Greek Greeks upon this subject and should not trace the history of so remarkable a custom in their several communities. From original 1883 introduction to a problem in Greek ethics, Simmons began his defense of homosexuality with the defense of man-boy love in the Hellenistic tradition. This was significant. Wilde would raise the same defense at his own trial a decade later and fail. Simmons feared no better. Certainly, the Eromenos Orestes pedagogical relationship was a reality among the upper classes in Athens in the late archaic period and adult homosexuality existed in the militaristic city-state of Sparta, but these were neither universal practices nor universally approved practices among all classes. In all regions and at all times in ancient Greece, from the Homeric to the Hellenistic age. Also, even where certain forms of homosexuality existed, they were not exclusive. A man was still expected to marry and have children. Further, such practices were always surrounded by tightly prescribed customs and laws, an altogether unpromising foundation on which to build his case for homoerotic emancipation. In his more lengthy sequel, A Problem in Modern Ethics, Simmons began with an appeal for a frank and open public discourse on a passion which society was reluctant to acknowledge, much less name. So Simmons provided a name, the inverted sexual instinct. Modern science, he stated, had adopted this neural, this neutral nomenclature that was free of prejudice, and he would also. Like the true modernist he was, Simmons claimed that Christian opinion against sexual inversion must be re-examined in light of new evidence provided by science. This new evidence, Simmons stated, had dispelled many vulgar errors concerning the sex practices of inverts, including the belief that all inverts practice the aversa venus sodomy, that same-sex practices produced disease even when practiced in moderation, not excess, that inverts preyed upon underage boys and that all inverts were effeminate. Simmons drew upon the work of a variety of authors on the subject of sexual inversion that included the famous Austrian physician, Austrian physician Professor Richard von Kraft Ebbing, the Italian criminal psychologist Cesare Lombroso, and the German jurist, political activist, and self-avowed homosexual Karl Heinrich Ulrichs. Dr. Richard von Kraft Ebbing, 1840-1902. Dr. Richard von Kraft Ebbing, professor of psychiatry and neurology at the University of Graz and of Strasbourg and Vienna, gained worldwide recognition as the foremost specialist in the categorizing of mental illnesses with the publication of Lehrbuch der Psychiatry, Textbook of Psychiatry, in 1879. It was followed in 1886 by Psychopathia Sexualis, Aberrations of Sexual Life, a catalog of all known sexual pathologies in which Kraft Ebbing identified four specific diseases of the nervous system that were characterized by an individual's attachment to deviant sex objects, sadism, fetishism, masochism, and the antipathic sexual instinct, homosexuality. Kraft Ebbing did not view homoerotic attraction as a simple criminal vice, but as a complex degenerative moral physiological disorder that was generally inborn, although it could be acquired by habits of masturbation or debauchery. Thus, homosexuals should be considered diseased degenerates, not criminals. Kraft Ebbing classified and subdivided sexual inverts into three main categories 
and an assortment of subdivisions. The psychical hermaphrodite, a person who is predominantly sexually attracted to his own sex, but who retains a rudimentary attraction toward the opposite sex. The earning, a true homosexual who is solely attracted to his own sex, has, has an aversion to the opposite sex. Some male earnings appeared to be normal in every way except their sexual appetites. Others assume a feminine gender role in the manner of dress, voice, and body movements. The androgyny, a person who possessed the soul of one sex, of a one sex, but is entrapped in the body of the opposite sex. Kraft Ebbing was publicly opposed to legal and criminal sanctions against sexual inverts because such individuals in the light of science are not responsible for their acts. He advocated medical treatment, including hypnosis, not incarceration of sexual inverts. His theories on the necessity of the consecration on the his theories on the necessity of the conservation of sexual energy as a hallmark of a civilized society were closely connected to his views on onanism, solitary masturbation. Like many historic Victorians, the Austrian psychiatrist viewed self-pollution as a neuropathic disposition or taint that resulted in a variety of physiological ailments, destroyed virility, weakened the will, and eroded one's moral character. He also viewed habituated masturbation as a major component of the ideology of homosexuality. He believed that every homosexual was an inveterate masturbator, but not every habitual masturbator was an invert. Simmons disagreed with Kraft Ebbing's exposition on the connection between onanism and sexual inversion, as well as his claim that, he, that inherited neuropathy was the root cause of same-sex attraction. But he found Kraft Ebbing's opposition to anti-sodomy laws ideologically useful. Dr. Caesar Lombroso, 1835-1909. Dr. Caesar Lombroso was an Italian psychiatrist, professor, and criminal forensic specialist who studies on characterology and criminology were well-known in Victorian professional circles. He studied at the universities of Padua, Vienna, and Paris, and later became professor of psychology at the University of Padua. And that's all my reading right now from the Rite of Sodomy. I'll continue in my next podcast, because I'm already at 52, almost 53 minutes. So, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.